We're doing our theme here this year uh, is continue. Uh, this, uh, the banner on the back, uh, we're talking about the Word of God, how we ought to continue in the Word of God, and we're giving different aspects of this. And so today I'm coming to John chapter 5. I don't have time to look at the whole chapter. We will comment on bits and pieces of it here in the introduction. But I'm going to call your attention to verse 39 and verse number 40. Two verses that I want you to take note of, and then the title is taken from just a part of this here this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse number 39. Notice what Jesus said here. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I want to take the first three words there, verse number 39, and uh, draw this out for our message here today. Search the Scriptures. This is what Jesus said to these religious leaders and these Jewish people that were right before him. He encouraged them to look at the Scriptures and see about where eternal life really lies. And so I want you to go ahead, bow your heads for a moment, and let's pray together. And what I'd like you to do do is as I pray for God's leading in our midst, I want you to pray very specifically that God will work in your heart and He'll touch you. Shall we do that together, please? Father, thank you. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Father who sent Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for all these wonderful things. In these moments that we have right now, I'd ask that you'd work in our midst. In Jesus' precious name, amen. John chapter 5, as it is to be taken, is really in, in one particular setting here of Jesus performing a particular act, and then the response of the religious people that are around him. And truthfully, when you read through John chapter 5, again, through this past week, I've read through it numbers of times, and I'm actually baffled as I'm done reading that section because I'm taken back by the unbelief of the Jewish people. What should have been Uh, something that was lauded by all who observed, this particular miracle that Jesus performed is actually looked at with a little bit of hesitation and a little bit of disbelief. What had taken place? The first 10 verses of John chapter 5, Jesus had healed a man who was impotent. In fact, for 38 years he had been in that condition and Jesus healed him. But it's very interesting, the disbelief of these Jewish leaders, because in verse number 18, they are upset at him for two particular reasons. Number one, he healed on the Sabbath. Number two, they're upset because he had gone through and actually had said that he was equal with God. Well, when you read the remaining verses in John chapter 5, there are two things that Jesus does to help show to these religious people who he truly is. Number one, he pulls out, if you will, his credentials. 
He begins to show in verses 19 through 30 the fact that he truly is a son of God. And I don't have time to go through that now. But then beginning at verse number 31, he not only gives his credentials, but he also shows his references. He shows those things around him or those ones around him who are giving witness and testimony to the fact that he truly is the Son of God. I'm just going to point them out. I'm not going to take a long time. But verse number 31, the witness of himself. In fact, I'll, I'll just draw this out for a moment to let you see. Look at verse 31 of John 5. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, what Jesus is saying here is not that what he says is false, but he realizes who he's dealing with, a bunch of religious people who are set on the law of you need two or three witnesses. So he says, look, I'm a witness of myself, but I know that won't be validated by you. So let me give some other witnesses. Well, in verse number 33 to 35, he gives the witness of John the Baptist. You remember that day when John the Baptist stood there and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world? That's one time that John the Baptist gave a witness of Jesus. In verse number 36, he said that his works are a witness. Think about all the miracles that Jesus did. Think about the one he just did with this man who is lame for 38 years, and that work in and of itself is a witness of who Jesus is. Verse number 37 to 38, the Father is a witness. But then lastly, we come to our text and the most important part for our time here today, and that is the witness of the Scriptures. What did Jesus say to them? Search the Scriptures and look in there to see how I'm spoken about and how there is eternal life through me. Jesus lets us know that the Scriptures have spoken about him, and therefore the Jews ought to search those Scriptures out. Now, they knew the Word of God, but there were two inherent problems with the Jews. Number one, they had added so much to the Bible that it had clouded their vision. Look at verse number 38, the verse before our text. He says, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. They had so added to the word of God that it had really clouded their vision and they couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. But the second problem that these Jewish people had was the area of pride. Look at verse number 40. What does the Bible say? Jesus says, and ye will not come to me. Now, I, I want to share this right now. I'm going to throw this in. This is a little extra right here. Here's one of the main reasons why people refuse to come to Jesus. You know what it is? Pride. Oh, preacher, I, I, my mama raised me this way, or I was taught this, or this is the church I've always been a part of, and pride holds them back. And Jesus nails these religious people and says, I want you to know something. The reason you don't see me, the reason you're not coming to me is because of pride. And he told them, he says, I want you to search the scriptures and I want you to find where they talk about me. 
And so that's what we're going to do today, is we're going to go ahead and take a moment and, and briefly search these scriptures to see how they speak about Jesus. I want to give you three main points. Number one, we're to search the scriptures, for in them ye, uh, ye find a promised Messiah. Notice them. For in them ye find a promised Messiah. Notice that. Now, when you look at this, in fact, it's wrong up there. I'm sorry. I just looked at my notes and I thought, did I put that wrong? So forgive the grammar and all that, but you're going to find a promised Messiah in the Scriptures. You know, it's estimated that there are about 300 plus prophecies about Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot of prophecies. There's prophecies about his birth, about his death, about his life, uh, about uh, the resurrection, all sorts of things that are prophesied about Jesus Christ. And I want to go through a couple of those here today, and I know that there are some that are very common to us, such as the prophecy of his virgin birth, or the prophecy of where he would be born in Bethlehem. But I want to take a few prophecies that may or may not be familiar with you today. Number one on the screen, I want you to notice Genesis 49, verse number 10. The Bible says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, everything with the Jews up to this time was all wrapped around family and genealogy. Every Jewish person that was in this time that we're reading about would know which tribe they're from. Oh, I'm from Issachar, or I'm from uh, 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 Judah, or I'm from Simeon. They knew their lineage. They knew their dad and grandparent and great-grandparent, and all the way back they could trace it, and it's no different for Jesus Christ. The Bible made clear in the very first book of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah. Now you say to yourself, well, what, what is that verse really talking about here? Let me just take a couple of words in this verse. Notice the word scepter. Now we don't use this much, but it refers to a staff, which means that that person holding that staff has the right to rule. Then there is a word or the title Shiloh. That means he to whom it belongs. In other words, to this one who would be born of Judah, who would be referenced here as Shiloh, there would be something about him that would have the right to rule. He has the messianic title. So what is this prophecy given? That the Messiah would be born of Judah. You say, Pastor, was that fulfilled? You march all the way down to the New Testament, the third gospel of Luke, chapter number three, and guess what Luke does? When we read the Gospel of Luke and we get to chapter 3 and we're reading these names, this one begat this one, and we go, oh, I can't believe I'm reading it. I'm going to skip through this. Well, I'm telling you what, God saw it important to add this because when you find in this that Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Isn't that amazing? A prophecy given. In fact, the last book of the book of Revelation, chapter number 5, verse number 5, here is John the Apostle, and he's kind of bemoaning the fact that there is this title deed for the earth that he feels nobody can open it. 
But all of a sudden, there is one that steps forward who is able to open that title deed to the earth, and it is none other than Jesus Christ, who is referred to as a lion from the tribe of Judah. I want to tell you something this morning. There is a great prophecy in the fact of which tribe Jesus would be born of. Let me give you another verse, number two, uh, listed on here is the verse Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 to 19. The Bible says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. Now, what, what is this about? This is Moses now writing this book, compiling these things. And what God says is, Moses, I am going to raise up a prophet just like you. And the things that he's going to speak here... Uh, notice, he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now, all the way back in the Old Testament, here it is, this passage is given, this prophecy of a prophet who would come just like Moses. Now, you know what's happening ever since then? All of these people are thinking, all right, where's the prophet that's like Moses? Where's the prophet that's like Moses? In fact, they asked John the Baptist, art thou that prophet? John said, no, I'm, I'm not that prophet. The next chapter in John chapter 6, we find in verse number 12 or 14, the fact that when Jesus had performed these miracles, guess what the people said? This man is that prophet. So think about it, a prophecy given here that he be like unto Moses, and it is fulfilled in the New Testament. Let me show something else on the screen. It is Psalm chapter 22. If you've ever taken a time to read Psalm chapter 22, it is a wonderful chapter because it is referenced as a messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 22. And when I read Psalm 22, I find a number of things that are spoken about concerning the Messiah. Let me give you a couple of those. Verse number 16, the Bible says that they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now you say, big deal. What's, what's the big deal about this? Here's the big deal. Do you realize when the Psalms were written somewhere around 1000 B.C., there is a prediction of the Messiah that when he died, he would be pierced through his hands and his feet. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a crucifixion. As Jesus' hands were spread out on, that on the beam on that cross and his feet were nailed, his feet and his hands were pierced. But here's what's so interesting about this. When this was written in 1000 B.C., the form of crucifixion was not something that was utilized. It was not till at least several hundred years down the road when the Romans came into rule that they began to use this form of execution known as crucifixion. So do you think God knows what he's doing as he's putting his word together? There's another verse in verse number 18 where the Bible says, they part my garments and cast lots upon my vesture. Do you realize this was fulfilled in John chapter 19 where the soldiers that were there, the garments that were stripped off of him, Jesus is hanging naked on the cross and they took those garments and they split them up and basically they fulfilled scripture. 
Now, I could take the rest of the time this morning, and I could walk from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and I could go Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture and look at at least a couple of hundred prophecies, and we could fulfill being in here for three and a half hour service, right? Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Amen. He's only one person that said amen about being in here for a long time. Me and one other person. But no. But think about this. All of these prophecies were accurately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're not phased by that. Maybe your idea is, all right, prophecies, you know, somehow these things, you know, kind of all fall in line. I want to tell you something. One day, years ago, there was a professor that got several of his classes together to figure out the probability of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man. In fact, what they did was they took eight prophecies. Now, we're talking well over a couple of hundred prophecies of Jesus, but all they did was take eight prophecies and they said, what are the mathematical probabilities of eight of those being fulfilled in one man? Well, here's what they did. They figured out that the, the possibility of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. Or other words, a figure with 17 zeros after the 10. You know what number that is? That's one quintillion. How many knew that was a number, all right? One quintillion. Now, to further illustrate this, the professor gave this illustration. Suppose we took one quintillion silver dollars and we laid them out throughout the state of Texas, one of the largest states. Now think about this. You take one quintillion silver dollars and lay them out over the state of Texas. It is estimated by this professor that they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Now take one of those silver dollars, just one out of the one quintillion, and mark an X on it, and place it wherever you want in the state of Texas. Place it somewhere in Dallas. Place it somewhere in Houston. Place it somewhere in Corpus Christi. Wherever you want to place it, and then take a man and blindfold him, and let him go and make one choice. How likely would he choose that coin? Do you realize that probability is the same probability that eight prophecies will be fulfilled in one man? But I'm telling you, way more than eight were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you something. Search the scriptures, for in them ye find a promised Messiah that's been given to us. This is what these Jewish people were missing. But number two, he told them to search the scriptures, for in them ye are provided a motif. Point number two. Let me see if I have this right under. Yes, okay, that looks good to me. All right. For in them ye are provided a motif. Now, what do I mean by that? It's very interesting what Jesus was saying to these Jewish people. They were thinking that they had eternal life because the scriptures were given to them. 
They thought they had eternal life because they knew the scriptures backward and forward, in and out. They could interpret it in any different way. But look at what Jesus says to them in verse number 39. Look at these words. For in them, that's the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. You know what the problem with these Jewish people was? They had such a total reliance on Scripture and believed that their faith came from the Word of God solely. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't want, to, want you to miss this. I want you to understand it. The Word of God is very valuable. In the Word of God, you'll find life. But may I say that the words, the black words on white printed paper do not provide life. They tell us about the one who gives life, Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you something this morning. There are far too many people who are reading their Bible like it's some storybook, though there are stories in it. There are some who are simply reading their Bible as if they're just getting some moral ethic codes that they can follow by. And yes, you'll find some of those. But my friend, it is more valuable, more important than all that. This book has one central theme. It is a theme that is about Jesus Christ. If you read the scriptures and you miss the overall story, you see, it's important for us to step back and get the overall picture of who it's speaking about. It's speaking about Jesus Christ. We need to get the story that's of the Bible, not so much a story that's in the Bible. You know, it's amazing to me how unified this book is. 66 different books written to different genres, 40-plus authors from a variety of backgrounds and occupations, written over a period of 1,500 years, written among 10 civilizations, written on three continents, written in three languages, and yet it has one story of redemption, a unified story. You know, when you read the Scriptures, it is imperative that you get a hold of this fact that this book is about Jesus Christ and my relationship with him. It's amazing to me, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he had appeared to two men that were walking, the Bible says, on the road to Emmaus. I tell you, if, if you've been around these people, you have said, what's wrong with them? They had long faces. They were deeply saddened. And Jesus, who appears next to them, they don't know who he is at the moment, he begins to ask them, why are you so sad? And they begin to share, what's the matter with you? Did you just wake up from a coma? I mean, don't you know the news that's going on? Don't you see and hear the things that are happening all around this area? And they began to share with him the sad news that the one that they had hoped of, the Messiah, was dead. And I love what Luke says in chapter 24. Jesus said unto them, listen to this, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
And then notice this in verse number 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Jesus went back and said, all right, boys, let's sit down. Let's open up your Bible. And from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus, all the way to the book of Malachi, guess what he did? He showed them how he fulfilled every bit of that. Later on in Luke 24, he appears to the 11 disciples, and he reiterates the same point in verses 44 to 45. He says how he had fulfilled all the things that were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, and he opened their understanding. I love in the beginning of Jesus' ministry where Philip the Bible says, goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And the Bible says in John 1.45, Philip findeth Nathaniel and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can I say to you that if you were to take uh, just a uh, get up from a, a, a high vantage point and you were to able to look at the whole Bible, do you realize you'd see the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not saying that every verse as you sit down and read, uh, pull, pull that stone up and say, all right, where's Jesus there? But I'm telling you, the major story is all about Jesus. You read the Old Testament, you know what it's doing? It's preparing us for Jesus Christ. You read the four Gospels, it is manifesting Jesus Christ. You read the Gospels, or the book of Acts, I mean, it is the proclamation of the message of Christ. You read the epistles, it is the explanation of Christ, and revelation is the consummation of all things in Christ. From beginning to end all the books, it's an epic story about Jesus Christ. You know, when you read the book of Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. Now, how many of you have read those books and been able to find those? Can you say a little amen with me? All right. Think about this. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything broken. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In the Psalms, we find him as our shepherd. When you read that wonderful book of Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning of life. In the Song of Solomon, he's the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the glorious Lord. In Daniel, oh, that wonderful story, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Joel, he is the outpourer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our judge and savior. In Jonah, he is a risen prophet. In Micah, he is the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's our stronghold. In Habakkuk, he's the watchman. 
In Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. You come to the New Testament in Matthew, he is the king. Mark, he's a servant. Luke, the son of man. John, the very son of God. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. In Romans, he's the justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's our comfort. In Galatians, he is our liberty. In Ephesians, the head of the church. Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. First and Second Thessalonians, our blessed hope. First and Second Timothy, the bishop of our souls. In Philemon, he is a settler of our accounts. In Titus, he's the true elder. In Hebrews, he's our perfection. In James, he is the power behind our faith. First and Second Peter, our chief shepherd. First, second, and third John, our truth and everlasting life. In Jude, he is the one who's able to keep you from falling. And in Revelation, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I need an Amen out there. Amen. When you read the Scriptures, what you find provided for you is a motif, a theme, all the way through. You say, "Well, Pastor." You know, I've always been taught that when I read the Bible, it's all about me. I mean, I'm to find the answers to my problems, and I'm to see that my felt needs are taken care of. Can I tell you something? Yes, we all have problems. We're sinful creatures. Yes, we all have needs that we need met. But guess who they're met in? Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. They're men in Jesus when you begin reading this word and you become daily crucified with him, then Jesus begins to live through you. Number three, I want you to notice, not only you search the scriptures because you find the promised Messiah that you're provided a motif, but thirdly, in them you're presented a message. What is that message? Look at verse 39 to 40 again. He says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have, next two words, eternal life. Say that again, eternal life. One more time, nice and loud like you mean it now. Eternal life. Think about this. Eternal life. Now, I could almost take the Bible and break it down into three concepts. In the very beginning was creation. Mankind was created by God, perfect environment, able to live and enjoy God. But second concept was the fall of man. Satan had come along in the form of a servant, had tempted Eve, and Eve went back to Adam. Both of them had succumbed to this temptation, and they fell into sin, and sin corrupted not just Adam, not just Eve, but every person born after them. But here's the third concept, the most beautiful, redemption. Creation, the fall, redemption. While the first Adam fell, the second Adam lived a perfect, sinless life and was able to die on the cross of Calvary to pay for all the sins of the whole wide world. 
Now, when you take those concepts and you put them together and you look through Scripture and how that's unfolded, it's pretty amazing how we see the sin of man in the very beginning, how God had placed Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. Every tree they could take of except for that one tree. And Satan had a way of coming through and tempting them to take hold of that. And they sinned, and they had rebelled against God, and that sin came upon every single individual. Mankind now was lost. Mankind now was without hope, but that's where God came through and not surprised by what happened, but began to unveil his plan of providing a hope for them. Man was a sinner, and God wanted to make sure that people knew that they were sinners, so he provided the law, and when they committed anything against the law, their heart smote against them, recognizing, I'm sinning against God, but here was their problem. They kept looking to the law as, I'm going to follow this, and I'm going to do right. If I can conquer these things, maybe God will accept me. My friend, God never gave the law for that purpose. All along from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, God had been making a promise to them that he would provide one person who would pay the penalty for their sin and pay the penalty for the whole wide world. That was Jesus Christ. No wonder why Jesus said to these Jewish leaders, search the scriptures, for in them ye find eternal life, And basically, he said, that eternal life is found in me. You see, far too many people are trying to do good, are trying to follow their own way, but they all fall short. It's only in Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly, never dishonored his mom and dad, never said a cuss word, never uh, uh, lied about anything, never coveted, never stole anything, never committed adultery, not just the outward rack, but not even in his heart. That one who Pilate said, I find no fault in him. That one who Peter said is a sinless son of God, That one who John talked about, that he knew him to be without sin, it was that one who died in your place so you could have eternal life. And you know what these Jewish people's problem was? They kept looking at the Scriptures, and they had added to it, and their pride was, we are the ones that know the Scriptures. We find eternal life. And they were blind to the one that was standing right before them who said, I I am life. Now, as I close this this morning, I, I want to ask you today, how is it about your Bible reading? Are you simply reading the Bible as just a book of tales that are told from a long time ago? Are you reading as a book just to kind of teach you a few little moral lessons so you can kind of get through life? Good examples? Are you looking at simply as an owner's manual to give you answers for things under the sun? Or maybe for you, you're trying to find these little secret codes in the Bible so that way you can unlock them. My friend, though you may find certain things and can study the Scriptures and know them, don't miss the main character, Jesus. It's all about Him. And so today as you read these Scriptures... 
And as you hear the Word of God, I want you to say to yourself, Lord, how can you take that and apply that to my life? And how can you live that through me? Christian today, you that are saved, start opening your eyes to the Scriptures. Start searching the Scriptures. Some of you are are barely reading the Bible, uh, maybe just at church or maybe once in a while. You'll get Monday after the preacher talks about reading the Bible. You say, okay, I'm going to start reading the Bible. And Monday morning you read, and then Tuesday you forget about it. And Wednesday you're like, oh, forget it. And then the rest of the week goes by, and you don't touch the Bible. Start searching the Scriptures and seeing Jesus Christ. But I want to encourage you today, for those of you that are here, and you don't have eternal life, you don't have a guarantee of where you're going to spend. Think about this. Where will you spend forever? It's a good question to ask. Every person in here must come to grips with that question. And how you answer that question will depend on what's going to happen. Many are depending on the fact, well, I've gone to church. I've given money to the church. I've helped out people. I'm a good person. They name all sorts of things that are revolved around them, my friend. If your answer involves you, you're wrong. Your answer must be that my faith is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and my sins nailed in that cross. He was buried and he took my sins and he put them away as far as the east is from the west and he didn't stay in that grave, but he rose again the third day with a new life and that day that I trusted him, he gave me a new life. A new life here and a life to enjoy with him forever in heaven. Now, if you're not saved today, why don't you start searching the Scriptures and finding Jesus? Because it's all about Him. November 27th, 1993. It's the day I got married. Aside from my salvation, it was the best day of my life. I remember standing there at the front of that church, right at the end of that center aisle, and I was nervous about being in front of people about this crowd here. You say, preacher, you were nervous? Yeah, I hadn't really been preaching a whole lot, and I was nervous. I was shaking. I kept touching my face, doing all sorts of things. I was just nervous. But I remember looking around at that church. It was the Elam Baptist Church in downtown Chicago. And I'm looking at all the decorations. There was candles on both sides. There was flowers. My wife had borrowed brains. She's not much of a decorator. She'll admit that to you. But she borrowed a lot of brains about how do we decorate. And and boy, I saw the girls lined up who I think they call those the best women or the bridesmaids or whoever they are can't remember the name of that. I'll have to learn that before the wedding coming up here. Then you get all the groomsmen, the best man. Boy, they were decked out nice and sharp. And I looked all around. The church was decorated beautiful. The, the, The flowers, the candles, everything was nice. But all of a sudden, those doors opened in the back. And the most beautiful woman stood back there with a veil over her. And all of these heads turned and looked at her. 
as she marched down that aisle and she stood right there before me, my soon-to-be wife. Can I say that for you in your Bible reading, many of you are getting too caught up in all of the peripheral stuff. Now, is all the Bible applicable? Absolutely. I'm not saying ignore it. I'm not saying put it aside. But don't miss Jesus. Every day you open that book, Jesus, not as the bride, but as the groom, stands before you and says, here I am. Here I am. Look at him. See him. And follow him with every fiber of your being.